Well, good morning, guys. Great to be with you this morning. It's a, it's a privilege for me to be here, um, kind of as a guest speaker filling in um, for Pastor Travis while he's away this week. Um, last week, Dylan, Dylan um, gave us a great message. We started uh, a new series um, going through the, the book of Jonah, the four chapters. So it's a four-part series, one, one chapter each week. And, and Dylan also was kind of a guest speaker, and, and he kind of made this comment. He said, you know, if, um, if you don't kind of, you don't like what you hear today, you know, come back next week. <laughs> and so I said, thanks, Dylan, thanks for the pressure. And then I got thinking about it, and I'm like, is that how he said it? What did he say? If you don't like what you heard today, just come next week. <laughs> if you think this is bad, come next week. But, so I want to take it a little bit different way, so, so if, you, if you do like anything about um, the message this week, I would love to hear it. Um, if there's anything that you don't like about it, that you don't care for, that's criti criticisms or, or uh, comments and whatnot, Pastor Ian is glad to take all of those. <laughs> so, let's jump in. Um, so what I'd like to do, as I said, uh, Dylan went through chapter one last week um, of Jonah, and so we're going to hit chapter two this week, and kind of to get us up to speed, I'd just like to do kind of a quick recap on where we are. Um, so um, chapter one began um, by God calling Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. And not too much is said about Nineveh in the first chapter, other than it was, a, it was described as a great city, and that there were evil things going on there. And God tells Jonah to go and call out against it. See, Jonah is a prophet. He's kind of a preacher. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was located in what today would be Mosul, Iraq. Um, and Jonah was an Israelite. And the Assyrians, the Ninevites, were enemies of Israel, and, and they were really violent people. So, so what Jonah is being commanded to do is kind of the equivalent of, of today, of, of a Christian pastor being told to go into the heart of ISIS, and you preach against them. You preach Jesus to them. And so this isn't an easy assignment by any means, and so Jonah does what probably you and I, every one of us would do. He says, no thanks, God. Not going there. And so what he does is he climbs aboard a ship that's headed for this place called Tashish, 180 degrees in the opposite direction of where God has called him to go. But God, of course, sees Jonah try to run from him, and God brings about this huge storm. Verse 4 says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea so that the ship was on the verge of breaking into pieces. And so the captain and the crew, they try everything. First they throw cargo overboard to lighten the ship. And then the captain goes down below decks, probably to find more cargo, and he finds Jonah down there asleep. And so he yells at Jonah and wakes him up and drags him topside up on the deck 
And there's a little bit of an argument and a discussion there. And finally, Jonah says, throw me off the ship into the sea. Because Jonah's sure, he realizes this storm is the result of him running from God. And so they throw him overboard. Verse 15 says that they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. The storm just immediately stops. Verse 16 continues on and says, Then the men, the ship's crew, and the captain, they feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And chapter 1 finishes up with verse 17, which says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So that's where we left off last week uh, and where we're picking up the story again this morning. Jonah is in the belly of this fish. So if you don't know anything else about Jonah, chances are that you've heard at least about the fish. Jonah in the fish. Or Jonah in the whale is what my, grandma, my grandmother used to um, call it when she told me the story. So let's talk for just a minute about this fish. It's easy to get hung up on the fish. We can become fixated on it. I mean, you hear that God sent a fish that swallowed up Jonah, and he was inside this fish for three days and three nights, and then he was spit out alive. You hear that, and immediately you say to yourself, wait a minute, that, that just doesn't happen. And you can go down all sorts of rabbit holes of what type of fish it might have been or if there are any other cases in history where a person was swallowed by a fish and lived to tell about it. The whole sermon could be trying to convince you of how this could be true and totally explainable. But I'm not going to attempt to do that this morning because the fish isn't the point of the story. The story of Jonah is not about the fish. Instead, it's the story of a man who runs from God and the story of a God who will go to any length to bring him back. The fish is not God's punishment. If you think about it, it's actually more of a sanctuary. It's merely, the fish is merely a place where God reveals his grace to Jonah. There are four chapters in the book of Jonah. And the book is, is it's naturally divided into two halves. See, the, the first chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 3, they each start with God commanding Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. Both start with the exact same words. Arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah's response in chapter 1 is to turn and run in the opposite direction. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the, from the presence of the Lord. But by the time we get to chapter 3, while the command is the same, arise, go to Nineveh, Jonah's response is completely different. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. So something obviously happens inside of Jonah between the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3. Something happens inside of him. God turns him around. There's a change of heart, a change of direction in his life. That's what we're going to look at this morning. How sometimes it takes a storm... Sometimes it takes us getting ourselves into trouble in order for us to see that our life needs a new direction. 
So let's open our Bibles to Jonah. And what I'd like to do is start at chapter 1, verse 15, and we'll go through chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven, driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever experienced what it's like to be thrown overboard. I remember a time um, I was tossed out of a raft on a whitewater rafting trip that we took, and I'll tell you, it was scary. One minute, we were headed down into these rapids where, where we dropped down into this swell, and the next thing I know, I was shot over the side like a piece of popcorn that had just popped. I hit the ice-cold water, and it sucked me under, and I remember the fear of wondering if I was going to come up underneath that boat and not be able to surface or breathe, or if my legs are going to get caught on some root or, or a rock under the water. But I did surface, and it came up exactly right beside the, the raft. I don't know how, because that water was fast, and, and it felt like I was under for a long time. But I popped right back up, and immediately was panicking and, and reaching and kind of grabbing a hold of the raft. But luckily, my friends were there and grabbed a hold of me and pulled me back in. But there's something really unnerving about being thrown into deep water. I remember just gasp, a gasp, a surprise of how cold that water was. And that feeling that you get when, when water goes up in your nose, like being punched in the nose. And how the sound just all of a sudden got muffled and a sense of kind of panic. And I remember feeling that this isn't good. This isn't a good place to be. And I think that Jonah felt a lot of those things, but even more so. Because he had been tossed off a ship in the middle of the sea in a hurricane. And so what he had was, was this very real near-death experience and it causes Jonah to take stock of some things. It causes him to look at some things that are going on in his life. See, one minute Jonah is running away from God, 
away from his presence. And the next is it's as if God says, okay, Jonah, I'm going to let you experience what it's like to not have my presence. I'm going to allow you to sense what it would be like if I really abandoned you. I'm going to show you what a dangerous and hopeless place that is for you. And then I'm going to reach down and I'm going to pull you back to me. And so inside that fish, as that whole experience is replaying through his mind, Jonah comes to see God's hand in those events. And it all pours out in this prayer. He becomes conscious of the full weight of what God's judgment would look like. Of just how big God is. And how, how really small he is. And all of that realization comes out in the words of this prayer that he says from the belly of the fish. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me. I was in trouble. On the brink of death, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The floods surrounded me, the billows and the waves passed over me. The water surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. I was pulled to the bottom, weeds wrapped around my head. Yet you, my Lord and God, have brought my life out of the pit. What you hear in those words is a person who has come to grips with the fact that without God's hand of grace, he would have been a dead man, and there was not a single thing that he could have done to prevent it. What happens is that the knowledge of God travels from Jonah's head into his heart. There are different levels of knowledge, levels of what it means to, to know something or someone. You can know about God without really knowing Him. There's a surface-level knowledge, and then there's a heart-level knowledge. There's a knowledge that's just merely the facts, and then there's a, there is knowledge that is personal and intimate. The truth of God had not penetrated God, Jonah's heart until God had thrown him in over his head. The truth that God is real and close to him Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, while he was on the ship, Jonah had told the crew, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. I fear the Lord, he said, from the deck of a ship that was headed 180 degrees in the opposite direction of where God had called him to. I fear the Lord but I'm going to live my life my way. That doesn't add up. That's just a ridiculous statement. But in reality, that's something that we do all the time. I've done it. Thought the same thing in my own life for the majority of it. I would have told you that I was a Christian See, I wanted Jesus to be my Savior. I wanted to get to heaven, but what I didn't want was for him to be the Lord of my life. Romans 10, 9, uh, 10 verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 
For faith to be genuine, the heart and the head must be connected. The actions, our actions, our life, has to live out the words that we say, the things that we say we believe in. And that means that the illusions that we hold, that we know what's best for our lives, that we, the illusion that we're in control, the illusion that we're self-reliant, those illusions have to be shattered. And that doesn't sound pleasant, and it's not, but it's necessary. We need to get to, from a place where we say to God, don't try to tell me what to do, to a place where we're saying, please God, tell me what to do. Anyone who is truly a believer, anyone who is truly God's child reaches this point. Jonah had to reach this, that point. You and I need to reach that point, a turning point, where our life that was headed away from God is redirected back to God. But what does that look like? How does that play out in real life? It can be hard to identify with Jonah's story. See, it took place thousands of years ago in a different land. There's a different language, different culture. They had different customs, different background stories that we don't fully understand. It's different today. But God is still working in the lives of people today in the same way that he did with Jonah. He's still bringing people to a turning point. He's still transforming hearts and redirecting lives. And he still does it sometimes by allowing us to experience a storm that we create for ourselves. So what I'd like to do is, is, is take a story from some current events from today to try to illustrate this a little better, maybe in a way that we can see. See, it was a couple of weeks ago that the news came of a helicopter crash in California that took the lives of nine people. And among those was this guy named Kobe Bryant. Some of you might be very familiar with who Kobe Bryant is. Others might have heard the name or seen the stories when he died. And there are others still who have no idea who Kobe Bryant was. Here's what I knew about him. I would say that I was somewhat familiar with who he was. I knew him as the basketball player who played for the Lakers. And he was a great basketball player. One of the all-time greats. Just a, a few of his accomplishments, not all of them, but a few, were that he was the winner of five NBA champions, championships. So that's the basketball equivalent of the World Series or the Super Bowl. In a 20-year career, 18 of those years, he was an all-star. He was a league MVP. He held the leagues, uh, led the league in scoring two different seasons. He had two gold medals from the Olympics, and he was a sure bet for the Basketball Hall of Fame. He was an incredible talent on the basketball court. There was a game where he scored 81 points, 81 points by himself against another NBA team. In his final game before he retired, he scored 60 points in that game after 20 years in the NBA. But I'll tell you this, that I wasn't particularly a, a fan of Kobe Bryant because the image that I had in my head 
was more of this cocky guy that was, that was a really talented athlete. He was the kind that was good, and he knew it, and he wanted you to know it too. And mostly what I remembered him was this incident in his past, that several years before, he had been accused of a sexual assault. That was pretty much the picture that I had in my head when I saw the first report about this helicopter crash. And so I watched as, as different reports and stories and interviews started to, to come in. And this picture of a, of a different man than I had expected began to develop. See, also on that helicopter was his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. They were on their way to a basketball game where she was going to play in that, uh, pl that she was going to play in that morning. And Kobe, her dad, this NBA great, was going to coach, coach her youth team. It turned out that he was the father of four girls in all, and he was deeply involved in each of their lives. The very reason that he had taken to travel by helicopter was that, so that he could spend less time in Southern California traffic and instead be available to pick the girls up from school, to help out around the house, to just be home. Derek Jeter, the New York Yankee, posted a story about how the most meaningful conversations that he had ever had were with Kobe Bryant, and what they revolved around wasn't sports, but around family and being a dad. One of the stories said that Kobe was authoring, now authoring a children's book, and that he had set up his own foundation for youth sports to help underprivileged kids, and another foundation was set up just to assist homeless people. He was still married to the same girl, one wife of 19 years. And then I saw this video of Kobe and his daughter sitting courtside at a basketball game, just spectators, but the camera showed the hands moving and the facial expressions of a conversation where a dad is explaining something, some play that's happening on the court to his daughter. And I could put myself in his shoes with that. I could picture myself and my daughter, Lindsay, doing the same thing at a Red Sox game. A husband, a dad, a father of four, coaching his kids' teams, a mentor. If you took away the helicopter and the celebrity part of it, it might remind you a lot about Pastor Travis. It might be a picture like that, of a dad like that. See, it was the picture more of an ordinary guy doing his best to be a good dad and a husband than some basketball legend. But I was still skeptical and played a lot of this off simply to be sentimental feelings after a celebrity had died. And the reason that I was skeptical went back to that incident in his past, because nobody was really talking about that. See, back in 2003, Kobe Bryant was arrested and charged with sexually assaulting a young woman at a hotel in Colorado. The accusation and the details played out in this media frenzy, and overnight, this high-flying, 24-year-old, multi-millionaire athlete, his world and his image, it began to crumble around him. This wasn't the picture of a guy who would someday be described as a family man, but instead it was the picture of a man with no consideration for anyone except himself.
who needlessly, carelessly, selfishly, and harmfully dragged his wife, his family, this young woman, and even himself into a storm that he created. I remember that I was happy when his sponsors started dropping like flies. I remember at the time thinking, man, he deserves this. I'm glad he got caught. I hope they throw the book at him. See, he denied it at first, but then later changed his story, saying that, that he had been with her, but, but that it was only consensual. And this whole play, thing um, turned into this he said, she said mess that played out on the nightly news. And the case against him was eventually dropped when the accuser, accuser refused to testify. And there was an out-of-court settlement, and it ended with his public apology to the victim. And then over time, it just kind of faded away. This was the picture of Kobe Bryant that was in my mind when I heard of that accident. It just didn't square with the picture of the devoted husband and the loving dad that everybody was saying that he was now, the generous man, the caring friend. But then one morning, a couple of days after the crash, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed and came across a short video that was posted by Pastor Greg Laurie. It was a video of an interview with Kobe Bryant that was taken in 2006, three years after that incident. And the video is really short, and in it the interviewer asks, so what did you learn from this whole experience? Just going through what you went through, referring to that assault charge. God is great, Kobe Bryant says. Is it that simple? He's asked. God is great. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Yeah, but did you know that, the interviewer asked, did you know that before that incident took place? And he answers that question in a way I'll never forget. What he says next is, you can know it all you want, but until you've got to pick up that cross that you can't carry, and he picks it up for you and carries you and the cross, then you know. It's emotional and it's real. At one point, you can see him press his tongue against his lower lip to keep it from quivering. These words explain simply, perfectly, and beautifully the difference between a 2003 version of Kobe Bryant and a 2020 version of the same man. I think the reason that resonates so much with, with me is because I know the same God that he's talking about. I know the before and after, what my life looked like before God, what it looked like after. I know what it felt like to run from God and what it feels like for him to rescue me from where I was headed. Those are the words of a man who, who reached a turning point, whose life has been redirected by God. The same as Jonah. The same God reached down in the middle of a dark, nasty storm that each one of them had created for themselves. He reached down his mighty hand and he said, let me pull you out. I'm taking you back where you got off track. And can I just say a couple more things about this Kobe Bryant story? 
I want to say that, that I struggled with whether or not to use that illustration and the video for a few reasons, but mainly this. Because I wouldn't want this message to come across that it was about anything but God. So I want you to understand that I don't hold Kobe Bryant up as a hero or as a great example for you to live your life by. Not at all. He's a flawed human being, human being just like every one of us. But his words are both simple and profound because those words point to what God did in his life in the midst of a storm. God showed him grace that was not deserved. It was God that brought about the changes in that man's life. It was God that pulled him out of a storm. It was God that pulled Jonah out of a storm. And God that can pull you out of yours. It is God that will pick up the cross that you can't carry and carry both you and the cross with him. Every one of us is like Jonah in that we have all run from God. Some of you still are. So the important thing at Summit on Sunday morning is not that you're entertained or that you hear a feel-good story. The important thing is that you are pointed to the last words that Jonah said in chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord. See, it's a matter of first importance that you know for yourself personally that running away from God will bring about a storm in your life and that without him, if you continue to push him away, that your very soul is in a dangerous place. Because without him, your sins will pull you under. People say all the time, I don't need Jesus Christ. But I want you to know there's nothing that you need more. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That if you believe in him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son to condemn you, but that you through him might be saved. You need to know this at the depth of your heart because your eternal destination depends upon it. The Bible tells us that we will either die in our sins or in Christ. And the difference is heaven or hell. Jesus paints this beautiful picture of God the Father in his parable of the prodigal son. It's the picture of a dad. A dad who every day looks off in the distance waiting for, his, waiting for his son to return, to come back home. And one day, the father sees a figure on the horizon and he recognizes that walk. It's his son. And the parable says that when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And he had compassion on him. And his father ran to meet him. The father ran. And he fell on his neck and kissed him. That same God, that same father is waiting for each of us to return to him just like that. We run from him, yet he waits to run to us when we turn back to him the second we do.
So I want to close with a couple of questions for you. What direction are you headed? Are you headed away from him or towards him? Are you tired of doing it alone? Are you tired of trying to outrun God yet? Are you ready to turn toward him and take that first step home? Let's pray. Father, I I just am so grateful to you that I know the before and the after. That you let me in my life know what it was like to be without you and how unbelievable and unbelievably good you are to let me know how it is with you. And Father, so I pray that in this room, this morning, that there are hearts that are turned towards you. Father, we just praise you. And thank you for your son, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And it's his mighty name we pray. Amen.